Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Welcome back to our series on conscientious objection in patient care. And joining me to continue this discussion is Dr. Jane Stowe. In episode one, Jay, you walked us through some ethical tensions of our beliefs versus patient-centered care um, and what patients may need or request from us as healthcare providers. Through this episode, we're going to continue where we left off, and we're really going to hop into institutional policies, informed consent, uh, consent and autonomy, um, and hopefully throw in a few of those case studies and examples in there. Um, so, Jay, let's uh, really start looking at institutional policies and how is there protection, um, not even just through the institution that we work for, the organi- organization we work for, but also like states. I know every state is different and their governments as far as protection. So what is it that we should know and, and how these play together? Absolutely. Uh, you know, this is really an interesting question because if you ask the kind of the bedside healthcare worker, what sort of policies, rights, and protection do you have? I dare say anyone can give you an answer. You know, it's it's not something that we consider and think about. And truthfully, we actually have some decent protections out there. When you when you think kind of top down from uh, kind of a state level, most states uh, and, and it differs from state to state the language, but most of them have something where they've passed where we we protect your freedom uh, to choose and your your rights uh, to to stand by your your beliefs. So most states have this this out there, right? Right. And um, and it's really easy to follow that when your opinions uh, corroborate or co- go inside with the the laws that have been passed that allow X, Y, or, or Z. What what happens is so frequently as our kind of our ethical and, and moral compass as a society has moved from this collective belief to more personal beliefs. Now we have this state saying, hey, we protect your right to believe, but now we go into a healthcare institution and the institution itself says, wait a minute, I can't have 10 people acting 10 different ways. Right. Right. So now the institution says, you know what, I know there's this collective um opinions now um but now the hospitals are in healthcare institutions i use hospitals kind of interchangeably with institutions and clinics offices so many of them are putting out these are our values these are our this is our mission and they're stating very clearly what they believe in okay so one thing i would would suggest if you are going to work for a, a company or interested in a company have you pulled up their values and their mission and and what they believe? Right. Um, and does that match yours? If it doesn't, then maybe during that interview, you ask them, what happens if I don't believe this? Um, and just put it on the table because you're going to have an issue down the road because sometimes they're kind of broad. So you have these and then you kind of get to more specifically uh, policies within the healthcare institutions. 
that will guide um, kind of what you what, what can be done, right? Right. So what happens here is hospitals will have policies, and we, we kind of mentioned earlier where you know it will outline maybe a uh, uh, a framework of if you object to something, come over here and list it and, and let us know. So but, how to do it. It'll tell you how to do it when you already know that this is something you object to. But right. I, I do, and, and you can keep keep going, but I just do want to throw out there that sometimes I feel like you might not know what you object to until you get there. And there's one of the problems. And there's one of the problems. So what's not always clear is when you're at the bedside and there's an emergency that happens. Because of, by Murphy's Law, nothing is going to... Uh, uh, happen ethically or morally unless it is at eight o'clock at night uh-huh. or a Saturday afternoon and <laughs> it's an emergency. There, is what you're no saying. Nobody's there. there. No one's in the hospital, right? <laughs> right. So you have a house supervisor over all of the nurses. No one, no risk manager, <laughs> chief of staff isn't there, no executive is there. So, you know, it underscores this this idea that what is the actual what are the actual steps? Is there clear communication? Do we have policies and procedures that guide us, that tell us exactly what we need to do? And unfortunately, we don't always have the, the case. Now, we do have um, some support that is given to frontline staff is generally in an uh, ethics team. You know, many hospitals have an ethics team that you can call. And I think these are um, really great. I really do. I, I've had to call them a number of times. Um, I will tell you the issues with them, um, and we can bypass the nights and weekends where you can only imagine the difficulty getting in touch with people. Right. This ethics team is designed um, or reviewed at the first of the year, right? They got to go over everything. We review it. We designate people to be on it. It's not used for six months. Yeah. Okay. We don't use it. Now, all of a sudden, we go, uh, okay, who's, let's call the, the risk manager. Or let's call the physician. The physician calls. Well, I don't know who to call. The nurse says, I don't know who to call. They go up the chain and only nursing leadership can only think of two people. Let's call the CNO or let's call uh, risk management. Right. CNO hasn't had to deal with it in six months or more. Maybe not at all. They don't typically know. So they reach out to the risk manager as, as normal. So we call the risk manager and the risk manager goes, okay, well, tell me all about what's going on. They then have to get reach out and touch base with all the members, right, or attempt to. It depends on how big the team. Is your team four people? Is it 10 people? If it's 10, I dare say you get in touch with everybody. If it's four, you present the situation. Now, the physician that's sitting on this team has questions. Why wouldn't he? You know, he's got got legitimate health questions. So now the physician tells the risk manager, hey, I've got questions. The risk manager calls back to the department. Calls me as a nurse leader and says, Hey, the doctor wants to know this. I have to get up, go to the nurse, and figure out what those answers are, and then turn around and start that, that phone chain again. It can be four, five, six hours before you get a response. So, what happens when it's an emergent situation? Right. Somebody's got to make a decision. And usually, right. the risk manager, when they get enough pressure from the nursing leadership, We'll simply say, well, I, I think it's this. Let's go with this. And so when you, you think of that response and how you finally get there and the delay, 
are those ethical teams, is it lipstick? Is it really words on a paper, the idea is yeah. good? Or are they functional? And I think that's one thing that hospitals can uh, improve on is um, better definition, better call trees, better day versus night. Who's going to do it? If the doctor's not on call at night, are they? that's on this ethical team. Are they going to answer the call from a hospital? Right. You're not wrong. You know, <laughs> like, I, I'm I, not going in tonight. Like, look, I am not my, answering the phone. <laughs> my partner's on call. It is not me. I want one night off. Please, for the yes. love, let me have a night up. You know, and can you blame them? No. They haven't, they haven't been called in a year for this, two years for this. So why would they think that this would be a reason for it to be called? So um, I think that I think the, the ethical team and the decision and the guidance you get from them when you do get that guidance is incredibly beneficial. I just think that as a collective group, um, hospitals generally need to do a better job of organizing those for a, a more timely response to take that pressure off of that frontline nurse, that frontline LPN, that frontline physician, um, <clears throat> because they have multiple other people they're caring for. And it's, if they're calling you, it's a big issue. Right. Uh, and I think that's part of if you're assigned to it. I mean, today we have text messaging, so it's like... <laughs> Hi, I know I called you and you didn't answer. It's an ethical question. You know, and then normally they'll call you right back. But if they think you're calling them in, I, I don't know many people that are going to answer the phone to talk about that. Well, I think that having an ethical committee is great for, especially for uh, retrospect, looking at it in retrospect. You know, it's much easier to get people in there um, than it is in an emergency when it's planned versus when it's planned. So I think that it's a great idea, but you're right. How how do we work it out? Because, you know, most things are available Monday through Friday, eight to five. But for those that are, you know, there at night, that are there on the weekend, you don't have a lot of resources. Right. It's it's difficult. Difficult at best. Um, you know, the if you look at day shift versus night shift in most places, you'll see the night shift has stereotypically a much better teamwork, uh, yeah. much better framework for provi- for providing patients in their care is because they have to rely on each other. They have to Absolutely. work as a team. Day shift, we do have the ability to call this department, call that department to to make some calls and have other people do things. Right. Um, so night shift is generally a much better team and they have much better camaraderie and are able to call people quickly. It's just getting a response. Yeah, it's so true. Um so I know we've talked a lot about end of life. We've talked about abortion, but, you know, there's also some cultural and religious, um, moral, moral and ethical issues within culture and within religion that, that, that healthcare providers face. So can you kind of walk us through where that, where those lines are and, and the support that you have for culture and religion? So I think when you look at culture and religion, you know, most of us, our, our culture and our behavior has a foundation on religion. You know, I think it's very difficult to deny that when you look at the founding of our, founding of our legal, founding of so many uh, core tenets of our society. Well, I, and I want to point that out, too, because I feel like when the U.S. was formed, when the United States of America was formed, it became people were coming over. They really were the same religion. They had the same moral and ethical beliefs. And as people have migrated over here through the many, 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 many years, now we have so many different 
religions and so many different cultures than we did when we were first becoming an established country. And it's really interesting. Um, I'll give you a personal example. I was a travel nurse 20, I won't say years ago. <laughs> that um, many years ago. Huh? Yes, yes. Uh, and, and I did a stand out in California. And this was a very uh, highly populated Mandarin Chinese community. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, as I sound, uh, I do not know Mandarin Chinese. I do not know their cultural and religious beliefs. Yeah. I took care of an elderly woman in the ICU, and she passed. Uh, it was expected. Uh, she passed. And the ED was calling me, hey, we have a, a critical patient. We need to get up there. I worked with the house supervisor, yada, yada, yada. We transferred uh, that patient uh, down to the morgue, right? Uh, got, the, got the room clean. Well, I was unaware of uh, a belief at that time that they need to stay at least eight hours in the place of their death uh, spiritually. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was a, a large issue, and, and rightfully so. That was their belief, um, and I, I disturbed their belief. Um, as a traveler, if you've ever done anything like this, you know that the kind of unit or hospital education is uh, fairly minimum. You know, you're expected to come in and practice uh, to the standard of RN in whatever unit you, you are in. Right. Um, and that was not a problem. The competency was not a problem. The religious and cultural awareness of the community was a problem. Yeah. I, 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 I had no awareness. So, you know, this is not a, not, te- not specifically an issue that has arisen today, but it, it is something that I believe, uh, to your point, can arise more and more um, as there are so many different belief systems that are coming uh, into the hospitals, not only by our patients, but our healthcare workers. So what are we doing to educate me, individuals yeah. like me? When I go into the workforce to say, this is our population base, okay? This is what you need to do to be cognizant of their religion. Look, I wouldn't want my beliefs to be respected. Um, and I have no problem respecting someone else's. Right. You know, it, it's eight hours in a room. I, I don't, why, why would I have a problem with this? Um, right. But I messed it up. And so I, I do think there's opportunities there that, we miss out on educating. You know, finding out the uh, the population that lives in our community is not difficult. We, no. we for at the very least, we take a census every ten years, and it it'll give us the specific breakdown of each population, uh, the languages, and all you've got to do is look up those those individuals' uh, nationality or languages and backtrack a little bit, and uh, look for religions, the the major religions in those areas. And find out the big tenets. Uh, right. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. We'd go through extensive orientation. Uh, it could be posted in break rooms. It could be uh, all kind of things. Um, so it's, it, it is definitely something from a cultural and religious perspective that we, we know as a society very, very top. This religion doesn't want blood administration. You know, this, this, administer, this religion doesn't want any intervention at all. Right. But we don't get to the, the nooks and crannies of, why can't we reach out to those religious leaders and say, hey, can you develop me a one-pager 
Yeah. That that would like, help. What what do we need to know? We have it right here in this binder. <laughs> I can you flip know, to it when they come in and I can see everything I need to know. Yeah. And we don't even really have to do the work. I'm pretty sure those religious leaders will do it for us. Exactly. Which in turn, from a business perspective, they announce, hey, look, they care so much about you that they want to get it right. You know, if you have an option or you if you if something happens, maybe you maybe you want to go to this healthcare facility uh, for care because they care. Absolutely. I was just thinking too, as far as religion, um, you know, there are some religions where if it's a female, then they don't want a male other than their spouse, you know, touching them, helping to bathe them. So I feel like in cases, especially where that particular patient cannot speak up for themselves, maybe they're unconscious, maybe, you know, they're in a coma, maybe they're not they're mentally like they should be and they can't speak up for themselves you know us being able to conscientiously object to say i know that this person that i can't do this for this person so i need to be able to say i'm not going to care for that person it needs to be blah 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 maybe if it's a male it needs to be a male if it's a female it needs to be a female whatever the case is but just some examples of us being able to not only conscientiously object based on our values and belief systems, but on theirs, because that should be a part of ours as well. We want to do no harm to the patient. You, you know, you bring up a really interesting point. And I'll tell you kind of a, uh, a side story based off of that is not too long ago, I uh, was trying, I was working with the hospital and staffing agency trying to bring over some international nurses to help with staffing shortage. Right. Um, if you're in the ED or work in the ED specifically for a hospital across this country with COVID and did not experience a staffing shortage, I'm coming to work because <laughs> it, it, was bad. it was not a pretty sight. It was not fun. It was very disturbing. It was very difficult. And the truth of the matter is a lot of people left or transferred yeah. out because of the difficulty and nature of it. Um, so be that as it may being diligent and trying to find alternatives, um, we started interviewing, or, or I did, some international nurses. And to your point, some of the Middle Eastern nurses um, had phenomenal experience. They're, they're really phenomenal. Experience. And if you look at some of the hospitals over there, they're, they're phenomenal. I mean, they are, they have, you have to think about the, the, the money that they can, do, they can use to, to build them and the supplies and the equipment and the training. It, it really is second to none. Um, but to your point, they segregate care, female and male. So if I bring someone over, uh, to the United States and put them in, a, in the ER and say, you need to see anyone that walks through the door, like we, like we traditionally do in the U S they can't see half the population. They don't have the experience or the training. Yeah. Then you take it a second step and say, religiously, will they be able to? Right. And then. Thirdly, do I bring them over if they can't truly take a patient load as we have it designed? So you add all it's a complex layer of how do I be respectful to their religion, their beliefs, their beliefs, but how do I also accomplish the care and the patient centered care that I need? Um, And it's it's all gray. There's no easy there's no easy answer for that. Um, What I found was. There are a number of international nurses uh, working in the Middle East that are not necessarily uh, of that belief system. 
that who have other experience, both female and male, that could come overseas to the U.S. and, and work. So, but it adds a layer of complexity when you do try to be cognizant and respectful, but at the same time, from a healthcare, from an institution standpoint, I've, I've got a responsibility to provide care to everyone. Right. So it's very difficult. And it, yes, that, that does have a lot of complexity to that issue. Um, plus, you'd have the environment of bringing them over here, and it's like, well, why can't they see the patient? I've already, you know, so you, you start with the possibility of becoming a top, more of a toxic culture for the internationals that would come over and offer to work over here. So that is tough, tough to navigate. Yes, very much so. Another area where I see conscientious objection, actually, um, I think I got in trouble for this when I was a newer nurse, is informed consent. You know, I got to walk in and I got to get this thing signed, but I never saw the physician come in and talk to the patient. The patient's telling me the physician has not been here, has not talked to them, but I'm supposed to go get them to sign something? You know, that's informed consent has been an issue. Um, for as long as I have been aware of. And you would think that it would not be such a big deal. I mean, you would. It seems so straightforward. (laughs) An invasive procedure is going to occur, and you would think that the patient should have the right to hear from the expert as to what's going on and have the expert answer all their questions. Right. Um, But then you throw in this real-life workflow into it, and all of a sudden, informed consent just goes. It does. Uh, and, and I will tell you a situation recently, uh, yeah, I said recently, the last uh, few years that I've come across. I started a position as a director in the emergency department and quickly observed and pretty much about fell out of my chair when, when I saw this happen. But um, the ER physician, a uh, lady came in, car wreck, MVA. Um, needed orthopedic surgery. ED Doc was right on top of it. Great care. Nurse was providing great care. I mean, it was just, I was very impressed. I was excited that this was the team that I was going to be leading. ER Doc calls a surgeon. Surgeon says, hey, absolutely. Uh, we'll take him to the OR tonight. I'm in a case. Just go ahead and knock out and go ahead and knock out the consent. Right. I'm sitting there in the nurse's station listening to this. So the ER Doc gets up, goes in there. Um, talks to the patient, comes back, the nurse is sitting in the nurse's station and says, hey, um, go ahead and get the consent signed. I, I looked around uh, and I thought, you Were know. Were you looking for that physician that was going to do the surgery? I, I was looking for the surgeon uh, or the surgeon's PA. Um, uh-huh. And so then the nurse, okay. And I, so I thought, well, I'm going to follow this trail. So I watched the nurse. The nurse looked up online. Um, at the surgery that was ordered, uh, wrote it out, went into the room, got the patient to sign and signed after as a witness. And I was just astounded. Um, you know, the ER doctor was getting consents for all specialties that needed to go to surgery. Well, the ER doctor is not, one, not performing the act. Right. Two. So they're not the expert. They're not the expert. They can't tell you all the side effects and answer all your questions. Right. I mean... That's a difficult hill to climb right there. Then they come back and the nurse isn't even in the room with them to witness the conversation. Right. So the nurse yes. goes in there and gets all this stuff signed and has never heard this, the first question nor the first answer, first question. Um, 
So I followed a couple of more of them and simply went in there and said, hey, who's going to do your surgery? Ask the patient. I don't know. What do you haven't done? I don't know. And it's fair for the patients to have that response because it was very disjointed, right? The, The process wasn't a solid process. And it was very disturbing to me. So I, I wrote it up the chain of command thinking, hey, I'm, we got we to gotta straighten this out, right? Um, our patients deserve better. Our patients need right. to be at the center of this and be able to be informed of what's going on and have and, and proper knowledge in order to make, make an answer, a uh, proper answer. And the CEO instructed me, hello, stop right there. That throws a, a wrench in the practice. The surgeons don't want to have to come down there to all the families, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is their job. Well, I was I about fell out a second time when I heard that. So, so I politely uh, excused myself, then went and told risk management, let them chase that down and change the procedure and uh, play yeah. like I, did, I didn't know what was going on. But at some point in time, that that underscores the complexity of you know your belief, your ethical and moral belief systems, and standing up to change things to allow the patient to be the center of care while everybody being on the same page, right? Administration, the physicians, nursing, all have to be on the same page. And if we're not, we simply aren't going to keep the patients. We just aren't. And right. that's a shame. And, and if that goes to court and we have signed something saying that all of these events have happened, but they didn't happen. Legally, that's not, I mean, we did something wrong. We're signing our name saying we did something we did not do. It's it's a home run in court. From a legal standpoint, uh, I've I've got you dead to rights. If anything happens untoward, heaven forbid, if it does, um, just go ahead and get your checkbook out. Yes, that is, so that is definitely a reason to conscientiously object to a a, a workflow, a work process that is not going to hold up in court. We are going to go down for that. You know, objecting is not always bad. Objecting can still keep and may very well be, while I have personal beliefs uh, that may guide my actions, objection can also be keeping the patient the center of care and giving them the right care. And so if we keep that at at the forefront of our thoughts, hey, the patient wins, we win as healthcare workers, and it's just a, a win-win for I love what you said, that objecting is not always a bad thing. That sometimes we have to object to keep the patient the center. And that's so important in the care that we give, that patient-centered care, where we want to make sure they get what they need. And unfortunately, that has brought us to the end of our series. This was such a great conversation, and it, and it was so eye-opening to be able to just walk through some of these gray areas. I think informed consent is definitely not a gray area, and I'm glad to hear that that is not a gray area. Um, But I know that a lot of this is really going to depend on policies and procedures um, and really what your state outlines as as being okay for conscientious objections. So uh, as we come to the end of this, Jay, what can you say to somebody who's trying to navigate and understand conscientious objection? You know, at the end of the day, healthcare is a uh, difficult environment. You know, people don't feel well, they're sick, they're reaching out to you for care, they need help. And unfortunately, the art of medicine is, it's an art. It's, it's, it's not a defined science where we know everything that's going to happen all the time. So 
Um, while we practice this art, part of that art is knowing when to speak up. It's knowing when to be quiet. Um, but if you ever have a question, you know, as a healthcare provider, you know, we all put our pants on the same. Put them on, stand up, uh, speak up, keep your patient, patient at the uh, center. And uh, I feel strongly that at the end of the day, even if you have to meet with a lot of higher ups in a very intimidating, intimidating room, if you were able to tell them, hey, my patient needed this, I stood up for my patient, you're going to win every time. That's so good. Yes. And I love what you said about the art and science because, you know, they, they, we describe nursing as the art and science of nursing. So very good. To our listeners, I hope you've also gained insight into this topic. And we really encourage you to explore many of the courses that we have available on EliteLearning.com to help you grow in your careers and earn your CEs. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.